It's time for the Comic Bing Comic Book Podcast. The podcast you look forward to for all of your news and reviews of the best comic books hitting stands. Whether it's DC, Batman, Wonder Woman, Marvel, Spider-Man, Image, Spawn, Saga, Boom, Once and Future, Power Rangers, or whatever book or publisher you follow. We cover them all here. This is the place for you. That's right. It's for everyone. This is the Comic Bin Comic Book Podcast. Let's get it. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Comic Bin Comic Book Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Theo, and uh, we got some books to talk about this episode. Uh, so we'll be covering a good bit of books. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode where we reviewed books, I mentioned wanting to read all three issues of uh, Top Cow's Metal Society from... Zach Kaplan and uh, Gil Hearn Balby. And so I, I took the time and did that. And so I'm going to talk about all three issues of that. But uh, in addition, we're also going to look at issue two of Public Domain from Chip Zdowski. Uh We're going to look at the first issue of volume three of The Magic Order from Mark Millar. Uh, we're going to be looking at Issue number one of Vampirella Year One from Christopher Priest over at Dynamite. Uh, She-Hulk number five from Rainbow Rowell. The third issue of Grimm over at Boom from Stephanie Phillips and Art from Flaviano. Uh, then we get to the penultimate issue, issue number four of The Joneses over at AWA Upshot, written by... Michael Moretzi. And then uh, you're also going to look at, you know, some of the other books that's going to be coming out next week and some of the books that I will be picking up. Uh, but before we dive into our books, let's do a quick look at the news. And of course, the big news over the past few weeks, of course, has been uh, San Diego Comic-Con is back. So after a smaller show last year uh, San Diego Comic-Con is back they had a full-fledged show uh, from what I heard some of the publishers didn't have boots even though they did do panels uh, so and at those panels of course they talked about a lot of the books that are going to be coming out uh, the rest of this year going into 2023 so uh, the news is out there uh, you'll be able to find all of that, including the winners of the Eisner Awards. Uh, as you know, they were always announced at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, so take a look at that as well. Solicitations for the month of October is out uh, for many of the comic book publishers. Uh, the one that I did not see uh, for some odd reason was the solicitations for image uh usually they will be out by now but uh last i checked at their website it wasn't but uh the solicitations for dc and marvel are out and then some of the smaller publishers i did see uh black mass comics uh titan has their solicitations for the month out as well uh, so i'm not gonna you know dive into what i've you know what i, what I plan on doing uh, just yet, you know, I cover that when we get into the previews episode. So uh, be on the lookout for that as we do our previews for the month of October. Uh, so that being said, I don't want to take up too much time on the news. Again, the bulk of it had to do with, you know, the news that came out of San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and, and dive directly into our books. And the first book that we're going to cover, or the first series that we're going to cover, uh, is actually my title of the episode. And that is Metal Society uh, from over at Top Cow and Image, written by Zach Kaplan with art by Joherm Balby. And I'm, I'm praying I'm saying his name correctly uh but again at this point there are three issues out issue four is actually out next week uh and so first things first 
when I mentioned it the last episode, I, I, I assumed that it was pretty much along the same line of uh, Real Steel, that movie that Hugh Jackman started in, starred in a few years ago where he controlled fighting robots. Uh, this is not the case at all. Uh, it is not real still. This is a world in which uh, we're going to get a fight between a human and a robot. And uh, if you haven't read the first three issues of it, I strongly suggest you do. It's a very good book. Uh, but again, this 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 story takes place on Earth, uh, an Earth of the future, and an Earth of the future that is dominated by robots. Uh, oddly enough, uh, humans at some point during this history uh, has died; they were extinct, uh, and robots, uh, to their curiosity basically brought humanity back and gave birth to humans via clones. And uh, as each generation of humans were born, they tinkered here and tinkered there. And so in this story with Metal Society, uh, this is the third generation that they are, they are create, they have created and they're, they're creating humans for no other reason other than the fact that they can uh, and again they're tinkering with genetics only because they can't they can they can do so uh, it, humans aren't needed robots have done a pretty good job of bringing the earth back from the brink of destruction after humanity went extinct so uh, they are they are the dominant population on the planet and uh humans you know again while growing in size are the minority now again this isn't like the matrix where they need humans to live uh no they are creating humans simply for fun simply because they can and so our Two central figures in in this story is Rosa Gentry. Uh, Rosa is the human cha- champion. Gentry standing for Generation Three, the third generation of humans that the robots have brought back or have cloned, more or less. Um, and what's interesting with this third generation, again, as I said earlier. Um, it, they're bringing humanity back simply for their own amusement, just to see what they can and cannot do. Um, most of the robots within society, um, they have a disdain for humanity. You know, they feel, hey, they destroyed the earth, you know, the first time. Why would we want to bring them back? So, you know, they have a lot of disdain for humans and humanity. Um, but she is a young woman who has as much disdain for robot society as well, simply because of how they look at humans, how humans are treated. Again, they're not needed according to robot society. They're, again, amusement only. And... What is happening is that these humans have been brought back. They're all in these camps. And um, right now they're basically trash haulers. They pick up trash uh, left behind by the robots. But eventually um, they their leaders go and they ask for more. Um, but in her disdain, Rosa has taken a liking to fighting, you know, working out in a gym, uh, just beating bags up left and right. So uh, she is chosen as a champion and she's been elected to 
the leadership of the human race um and the other the other central character first of all his uh its name is wo w o l 421313 and he is considered the robot champion but the way society for robots exists is as robots are created replaced what have you they are programmed with a particular assignment and that's what they're created to do they go out simply to do that that's how they earn the ability to keep energy so that they can continue ticking along um, by doing a good job at what they were programmed and assigned to do Uh, so Whoa, 421313. I'm just going to call him 421313. Or um, well, i just call him Whoa. Uh, yeah, that'd be simple. More simple. Uh, Whoa's being to life, what he is meant to do is he is a construction robot. And, you know, his, his programming, his assignment is to build things and based on his programming it it allows him to live a certain way it allows him to have certain partnerships as far as a girlfriend is concerned Uh, and it's all based on his programming and his ability to do his job well the most accurate that he can possibly do and and in his programming he is one of the best out there so he he is up in that tier that status tier uh but as i mentioned you know the, the human leadership goes to the robot council and they ask for more they want to do more they feel that they can be more than what robots can do and be more efficient in what robots can do with regards to their programming and just using their logic uh the robot council agree to this so they allow them to start doing more in society and because of this one of the things that they allow them to enter into is construction and because of this uh woe has been reassigned he loses his status as a construction bot as a builder and he goes out now he's basically a janitor and he he builds a great disdain for humanity because he's lost his status he's been locked out of his community he's lost his assigned girlfriend all these things now have been taken away from him and so he basically goes out and he challenges the human champion at this point there is no human champion but he wants to fight someone and he becomes a great fighter and um you know just letting off his anger if if you can say that for robots Uh, but he has now been because of his success as a fighter he's now been reassigned reprogrammed and been given upgrades uh, as a fighter and so he kind of get he kind of gets that that status back Uh, but the first two issues or the first few issues um looks at building up to this fight uh we get a background of rosa gentry gentry and we get a uh a, a origin of sorts for whoa 42 13 13 and how he was built and how he was programmed as this construction bot and how his status was earned and you know how how he came to be who he is and how he got to be who he is as a fighter 
And the same goes uh, with Rosa. We get a backstory of how she was created and how she goes out and just having this disdain for how robots look upon humans. Um, she goes out and becomes a fighter and a damn good one and is selected not only to be a part of, you know, humanity's leadership, but now is this champion that is going to represent humanity in this fight against this robot that is going to represent metal society, the dominant race uh, on earth at this point. And, you know, at this point, at, at, at the point that the third issue ends, you know, yeah, Rosa has her emotions with regards to how how she feels about robot society and how they treat how they treat humans. Uh, but she is not taking this as seriously as Wall is, because again, for him, it's about him gaining his his respect back, his respect as a as a construction bot, his, his, his status as being one of the best. He wants to go back to that. That's, that's all he wants. And, you know, he really doesn't want to be a fighter, but if, but if fighting allows him to get back to this, you know, this status that he had, that's what he wants. Uh, but, um, as they see that, the robots are really taking this seriously. Again, they've reprogrammed the world. They've given him these upgrades that makes him a little bit more invulnerable. Rosa now sees that, yeah, this is going to be a really big fight. And, um, you know, she, she's, she's committed now. She's ready. So I am, I am all in for, this series so i can't wait for the next issue to come out it's supposed to come out uh this coming wednesday issue number four uh from top cow and the art is it it is it is simplistic but it's it is good it you know it, it's not too much it it does enough to tell the story and it's enjoyable so again, if you haven't read Metal Society and the first three issues are already out, issue four comes out on Wednesday, uh, August the 3rd. So pick it up and take a look and enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have thus far. Okay, next up we have issue number five of She-Hulk from Marvel, written by Rainbow Rowell, with art by Luca Maresca. Uh, and one of the things I said in previous episodes that about this book, and again, I'm going to support it no matter what, uh, is that I still wasn't sure where Rainbow was taking the character, what, what the ultimate endpoint is for the series. Um, one thing that, you know, I, I think I can clearly see is happening is, you know, she is establishing a clear, strong connection, uh, between Jen and Jack of Hearts. And so, of course, Jack still can't tap into his power. He doesn't remember everything that's happened to him. Um, so it, it, we get to issue number five and they're out having lunch. And um, at the end of issue four, someone calls out saying that they found Jack Hawks. I found you. And we get in issue five, this uh, brute of a man charging at him. And uh, again, Jack still doesn't have his power, so he really can't defend himself. But you know, Jen does her, her does her best to you know take the fight to this guy. I mean, this guy is huge. He is 
taller than her. He is stronger than her. Uh, yeah, or at least he can take a punch. And, uh, you know, they go back and forth. You know, Jack tries to get a few punches in. You know, he slams him with a chair. But ultimately, this guy just does not. He does not stay down. Uh, but eventually, uh, a woman comes. And her name is April. But she comes to uh, calm him down. And, you know, she apologizes to both uh, Jen and Jack for what's been going on. But you can see as she calms him, you know, and, and this guy's name is Mark. But if you if you notice how after she calms him, you, know, you can see that he is he is someone with mental health issues. And, uh, you know, she acts as a means to keep him calm and uh, eventually you know again she continues to apologize as the two of them leave and ironically Jen lets them leave uh, but again this issue seems to focus a lot on uh, Jen and Jack and what seems to be you know a closeness these two are developing with one another. Now, again, just like with previous writers who have written She-Hulk over the ages, there has been this thing with regards to which form uh, Jen prefers. And right now, you know, Jen prefers, again, being mean green, being in a green form. Uh, but Jack also has a thing for Jennifer Walters. And uh, so, you know, he is able to get her to take that form a lot. This was a, a nice, sensible issue. Again, just looking more at how these two seem to be getting closer with one another. But at the end, Jen finds that couple, uh, the big brute that attacked him and the woman that was able to calm him down and she finds them at a playground and he's playing and uh, someone tells Jen uh, that, you know, they're married. Mark and April are married. Uh, again, this was a good issue. Again, it, it, it kind of brings to light or at least makes a connection more with what we might be getting at least with this story arc with Jen and Jack and whether or not by the time it's all over, we find out why he's lost his memory and, you know, he can't tap into his power. You know, I'm sure we'll get some answers on that, but at least we are getting a clearer picture of the budding relationship between, uh, Jen and Jack. Oh God, that just sounds weird saying that. Uh, but I will say this: I will take this relationship over whatever that was called between uh, Jen and Thor during the Avengers run. That that just no, I don't ever want to see that again. Um, the art is absolutely wonderful. It's nice. It's vibrant. It's, it's just, I, I, I really like what Luca Maresca is doing. And I can't talk about She-Hulk without talking about the cover from Jen Bartel. You know, the style that she gives Jen on these covers that she does as the main cover artist. It's just absolutely stunning. Stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. It truly represents uh, the femininity that She-Hulk is. And um, I believe in the October issue, we'll be talking again, talking about it more when we do our previews. Uh, she's going to be doing two covers, the regular cover, but she's also going to be doing a variant, uh, American Man variant uh, with Jen included. So I'm excited to see what that other cover looks like. It hasn't been released yet. But again, I will always support 
She-Hulk for some that may not be their thing. Uh, again, five issues in, I am starting to get a better grasp of what Rainbow is doing and, and what story she is trying to tell, at least with this first arc. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be on board no matter what. Uh, so again, that is She-Hulk number five from Marvel Comics. Okay, next up, we have the penultimate issue of The Joneses, issue number four, written by Michael Moresi with art by Alessandro Vitti. Uh, so, as issue number three ended uh, last month, The uh, Joneses were left at a crossroads, at least as I called it, with the Dylan's giving them an ultimatum, basically to join them as they attempt to, you know, take over the town using their reborn abilities, or to basically be against them and uh, fight. So this issue kind of, well, not kind of, but this issue gives us what that answer is. And we see, you know, the Dillons really begin to make their move with regards to going after city leaders and things of that nature. Really, really looking to take things down. And the Joneses decide, you know, they they can't decide they, they they can't side with the Dillons. They can't do it. But they don't necessarily want to fight them either. They don't want they don't want to be known. You know, they wanna team up and do the right thing. Uh, but the Dillons did not have any of this. And so uh, the the climax of it is the Joneses basically follow the Dillons to the mayor's home uh, as, as the Dillons attempt to break in and uh, do harm to the city's leader. But uh, in the end, as the Dillons attempt to get in, you know, the Joneses cut them off. They attempt to talk them down. They don't want to fight. They want to do things the right way, and they want to work with the Dillons as well. But again, Dillons aren't having it. Uh, they attack the Joneses, at least, uh, you know, make it feel like they're really fighting. But in the end, it it's all an elaborate plot by the Joneses. And so we see in the end that it's really all an elaborate plot by the Dillons. Like, because as the issue ends, we see that Darcy Dillon, the mom, uh, shows up on the steps of City Hall and she attacks the mayor, you know, calling her weak and being unable to protect the city. And with that in mind, Darcy Dillon is announcing her candidacy for mayor. And so, you know, Dillon's plan is, again, to take over, but they're going to take over via politics. And that's how that story ends. So we got some action ahead of us coming up in issue five, the final issue. Uh, again, I've, I've, I've enjoyed this series from the start. I've been a fan of Michael Moresi. The art is really good. Uh, the colors are pretty good. But we will see how the final issue turns out as the Dillons and the Joneses head uh, for final blows. And I would imagine that considering what happened to Agatha, the daughter, uh, that the Joneses are... They're, they aren't going to hold any, any blows back, and they're going to come full force to take down the Dillons. So, again, that is issue number four of the Joneses, issue four or five, uh, released by AWA Upshot. All right, 
Next up, we have the first issue of the third volume of The Magic Order, uh, written by Mark Millar, with art this time by Gigi Cavanago. Um, in the first two volumes, we took trips, of course, in America, and then uh, in that second volume, we went to England, and we met the folks in the British chapter. Well, with the third volume, and this is supposed to be the last one, uh, this takes us to Asia, and we'll be meeting the folks that's in that chapter. Um, just digging around the issue, again, Cordelia is still in charge of the group, but we see that uh, her dad, who basically left her in charge so that he can go and search for uh, her and Reagan's mother, uh, he's gotten close. As a matter of fact, he finds her at a lighthouse that he once grew up in, and he goes and he, and he goes because he wants to tell her that uh, Gabriel, who was in the first volume, uh, and actually turned on the family and on the magic order, had died. Uh, again, that all took place in uh, volume one of the series, and so he finds her and he tells her, and she kind of knows it already by the time he arrives, but it's revealed at that point that Gabriel wasn't the first of their children that has died. They actually had another child that died at some point. So I'm assuming as we get through the series, we'll find out more about that. The question is whether or not uh, Reagan or Cordelia knows about this other child, but it does not seem to be the case. Uh, but there are a lot of things going on as the order prepares themselves to head to Asia uh, to deal with what's going on there. So while the group is meeting, you know, they're wondering, okay, well, we're talking about Asia. Why isn't Sammy here? Sammy Lou is the uh, member of the order who charges up, who heads up the Asian chapter. And Cordelia reveals that, you know, she believes he may be part of the problem. Uh, and ironically, in this first issue, there's not a lot that we see in Asia other than uh, the first few pages where we're introduced to Sammy Lou, who is a businessman, who is a, I'll just use the word, egotistical. Uh, you know, he, he knows who he is and he knows the power he wields, not just as being a member of the, of the order, but uh, his financial wealth. But again, we don't get much, uh, you know, most of the story takes place outside of uh, Asia. And, you know, ironically, the most, the, the, the most adventurous part of the story uh, takes place, you know, towards the end, you know, where we find the moonstones, finding out about, uh, learning about, Gabriel's death and the fact that we have a second child that they've lost. And and the other piece, uh, which actually ends the story, uh, occurs, you know, at the Moonstone Castle, where Uncle Edgar, who for the past three volumes have kind of been confined, he's been like the caretaker of the castle where, well, he is starting to hear things and see things and have visions, and he's now questioning, you know, who he really is, and it's going to be interesting, you know, if 
you have followed the magic order through the first two volumes. Uh, you know, he doesn't know, he doesn't do much. Again, he's the caretaker. He is a magician uh, or a, a wizard like the rest of the family, but he doesn't stray far from the castle. As a matter of fact, if I can remember from that first volume, he can't leave the castle or the castle grounds. Um, but he is starting to remember something about himself and he's questioning it. Uh, so it's going to be interesting what his side story will be. So it seems that in this final volume, there's going to be several things going on. Unlike what we really got in part two or the second volume of the series, which really focused on everything that was going on in Britain. Uh, the, the only other side story was with uh, that relationship Cordelia had with uh, the member who was in Britain, but again, it didn't leave the British shores, you know, it, it was there and it ended there. But it's going to be interesting to see how these three stories uh, come together and end with regards to what's going on in this problem in Asia that Cordelia and the rest of the order will find themselves having to deal with. Now, looking at the art, the art is beautiful. Now, I will say I am still a fan of what Oliver Corpio did in that first one. Uh, but the work from Gigi Cavanago is beautiful and she actually um, does the main cover as well. So again, that is the Magic Order Volume 3, number one from Mark Millar and Gigi Cavanago over at Image Comics and Netflix Comics. Next up, we move over to Dynamite Entertainment and we get a new chapter in Christopher Priest's phenomenal run on Vampirella. Vampirella Year One, number one, again written by Christopher Priest with art by Ergon Gundos, uh, with some additional art in the prologue of the story by Giovanni Tapano. Um, and, you know, the gist of the story is just that. It's a year one. It's somewhat of an origin story of Vampirella uh, through the eyes of Christopher Priest as she tells what leads her to our world from Dracon. Um, first up, you know, I've been I've been following Priest's run with Vampirella from the from the beginning. You know, I read all of that first volume as well as Sacred Six, and then uh, the current um, Unholy story. I read a few of that, but I did um, I did not finish it. But this one kicks off, and, and, and again, the art from Gundos is typical with what we've seen uh, in the other runs of Vampirella. Um, it is really just everything that you would know from Christopher Priest and the style of writing that he has been doing as of late, you know, including... Uh, you know that 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 black title on each section that kind of leads you into the chapters of the issue, and so this takes us all the way back to when Vampirella is a child, and Lilith is the ruler of Draculon, and we see a revolution take place as they attempt to overthrow her. And as this occurs, you know, they're able to get Vampirella out and, and in the end they're actually able to get Lilith out as well. But, you know, this rebellion is going on because 
outside of the elite class on the planet. You know, there's a major drought going on. People are dying. There's no blood for them to drink. There's no food for them to eat. And, you know, it gets to the point to where they, the people have had enough and they, uh, they revolt against Lilith and attempt to take the planet back. So eventually, uh, you know, Vampirella grows up some and she finds a place to stay in the home of a senator. And the senator's wife figures out who she is and she's afraid because she figures if they find out that they are keeping and abetting the child of the former ruler that they hate, that they will then take out that hatred on them as well. So eventually uh, the wife goes out and finds uh, some supporters of Lit to explain that, yes, they do have a daughter. She's being well taken care of and they want to make sure that they're taken care of as well. But uh, the tides are turned and the wife is killed and we come to find that Lilith is not dead. And of course, if you read, if you've read um, Priest's other runs in the Vampirelli universe, you know that Lilith never died. Uh, so Guinness revealed Lilith is alive. The senator's wife is killed and Lilith uses her magic to take the form of this wife of this and she heads to the senator's home where she looks to retrieve her daughter uh, so the story was real quick you know it didn't take me long to get through it and again if you are used to how christopher priest writes his stories it it, it you can get a lot done and, and just get a quick read and still get a lot out of it. And, you know, that is the same case here. Again, as I mentioned earlier, um, the art from Godot's, and I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, um, it's typical for what you have seen in, uh, with the exception of parts of Sacred Six, uh, but it's typical what you've seen as far as an art style in the other Vampirella books. Uh, but I want to talk about this, the covers. And, you know, the covers for Dynamite, no matter what title it is, it, they are plentiful and they are sexy and there are a lot, uh, as I said, plentiful. And, uh, again, it, 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 it doesn't fail here as well, uh, I ended up getting the regular cover from Colette Turner, and it is beautiful. You know, it, it's nice and colorful. Um, I almost picked up the Lucio Perilla cover. Uh, usually, when it comes to Vampirella, he has always been the main cover artist, but for this run, uh, Colette Turner is, and I'm actually pleased with that. This, this cover is really nice, so... Um, again, that is Vampirella, year one from Christopher Priest and Dynamite Entertainment. Next up, we get the second issue of Chip Zdarsky's Public Domain. Uh, again, and this is written and drawn by Chip over at Image Comics. And bottom line, this would have been, now I know I said that, uh, Metal Society was my series of the episode, and it is, but this easily could have been my issue of the episode, if not for our last book, which turns out for me is the issue of the episode, but um, this easily could have been the issue of the episode. I have, as I mentioned the last time we talked about it, I picked this up on a whim, you know, not really knowing what it was about. But oh, this story is just so, 
so great. And, you know, if you are, if you are not following it, I highly, highly suggest that you pick it up. If you, if you can't find any floppies of it in your comic shop, try to find it online or just get it digital and, and, and follow from there. It is a wonderful story of drama that really could be a real life story. And in many ways it is when you, when you consider some of what we've seen in, in the past, whether it's the conflict that occurred between Bill Finger and Bob Kane with regards to Batman, or when you look at how comic creators have argued in the past over, you know, their creative rights and compensation for their creative rights, considering and, and compared to how these large entertainment conglomerates have been able to just reap billions and billions of dollars off of it and creators not getting due compensation. So it, it really takes a look at all of that. And so in this second issue, we are beginning to see the Dallas family prepare for what might be a pretty long battle against Jerry and the folks over at Singular Entertainment, which owns Singular Comics, which produces the Domain movie series. And so if you remember, and if you're following uh, the book in the last issue, uh, Sid found out through Jerry's assistant, who's a fan of his, that she found a contract, which basically says that he owns all of the creative rights to the domain. And so the family is discussing their next step. And Miles, who seems to have a lot more going on in his life, is taking issue with the pace that the family is going. And so he takes it upon himself to approach the folks at Singular to try to strong arm something out of them. And in the end, it doesn't work out as he thought it would. And, you know, he basically gets thrown out of the building. But Singular now has a copy of this contract, which shows that Sid and not Jerry was the owner of the domain and it starts to put things into motion. Jerry realizes that his assistant has turned on him. Um, there's a lot going on and, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out because it seems as if Sid's wife also may have a role in this and I don't believe she is the woman who is on the plane talking to Jerry uh, as she is heading cross country to New York. But it's going to be interesting to see the fallout now that Jerry knows uh, that his assistant leaked this info to Sid. Sid knows that he was really screwed, not just by Jerry, but singular and probably more by Jerry in the fact that he knew he was not the true owner of the domain. But also, it's also going to be interesting to see what goes on with the family drama within the Dallas household. Uh, as we can see, you know, there's a lot more going on with Miles than just what's going on with Singular and the domain and what he feels is, you know, should be his dad's right. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. You know, 
Miles is in some trouble and Sid is going to fight. You know, not necessarily because, you know, he wants what he feels is his, but he's going to fight because he feels doing so will help his son. And he's just a family man who loves his kids, loves his family, and will do, you know, anything to protect them. And if going to war with Singular will help his family, because again, this is something that his wife also, you know, explained, you know, why don't you fight for what is yours? You know, you know, I did my job in, in holding the family together. Why won't you fight now? And so we're going to see they're getting, they're getting ready, you know, to go to war. And I don't know how many issues, uh, public domain is set to be, but this could be, you know, this could be a really drawn out story when you look at all of the subplots that are going on. And, you know, in it all, the funniest part of it is, you know, Miles' brother and the lawyer who are just open drug heads. They're just popping pills and doing whatever. And, um, you know, that's the fun part. But, you know, the, the real serious parts of the story is what makes it intriguing and interesting. And again, I did not expect to enjoy this the way that I am. And it is, again, if you have followed what has been going on in real life with regards to IPs and, you know, creative rights, you will have a great interest in this as well because there is a lot of truth in what's going on in this comic book. Uh, so again, that is Public Domain, issue two, written and drawn by Jeff Zadowski over at Image Comics. Okay, so now we get to our final issue of the episode, and this is my issue of the episode. Grim number three, written by Stephanie Phillips, with art by Flaviano over at Boom Studios. And again, I one of those books that you pick up on the whim, you're not sure what you're getting, but once you get into it, you can't put it down and you want that next issue ASAP. And, you know, I met Stephanie Phillips a few weeks ago at Comic Palooza when I was supposed to be doing stuff at work. Sorry, don't tell my boss. But I uh, met her at Comic Palooza in Houston a few weeks ago, and we had a decent conversation about what's going on. And, you know, I asked her a few questions. Of course, she didn't let on to what is going to happen, but she did mention to me that she enjoyed just reading what other fans were posting as far as where they think the story was going, what's the story behind Jessica's, Jessica's past, and just how wrong they were about it. And so she asked me if I had any thoughts, and I responded to her that it, I did and I didn't, only because I didn't want to put it out there to be found that I was wrong. But after reading issue three, I really should have said something because I was pretty close, if not spot on with what my thoughts were about Jessica and what her past uh, consi might consist of. Uh, so as we get into the story, we see that that monster being that appeared in issue two, who at first I assumed was death himself, uh, was not death, but it's called the end. And the end is basically a balancer, supposed to keep things balanced between the living and the dead. And what has awoken the end was Jessica crossing over and being able to be seen as a reaper by the living. And so that created an imbalance that he's responsible for correcting and he sets out to do so. Uh, 
But what we also see is that Adira has some ulterior motives as well. And as the end sets out to correct this imbalance, she basically says, yes, you can have Jessica, but there's an even better way to correct this imbalance. And, you know, doing this would mean cleansing the afterlife and the end sets out to do just that. And so as he goes searching for Jessica, you know, he takes the dead and basically, I guess, makes them more dead. He destroys them. Um, They just crumble into ash. And so Jessica, Eddie, and Marcel, they're kind of in this void, you know, as uh, punishment for breaking into the vault and trying to help Jessica find out about her past and her death and how she came to be a reaper. And so they don't know what's going on outside until the walls start to break and the end breaks in looking to get hold of Jessica. And they are saved by Vincenzo, who is an assistant of Adira. And he and the three, uh, being Jessica, Marcel, and Eddie, you know, they escape into this chamber, which is supposedly the chamber of death himself. And it is here that Vincenzo reveals that death has gone missing. Yes, the work of death continues. You know, we have the Reapers who go out and bring the dead to the afterlife. But the Grim Reaper himself, death himself, can't be found. And they don't know if it's purposeful, if he's, if he means to not be found or if something has happened, but he's gone missing. And as they are within this chamber and, and they're here because this leads them out to another area to which they can uh, escape what's going on and get away from the inn. But what they find as they are here talking about that is they find that site uh, there. And Vincenzo reveals that that site cannot be activated by anyone other than death himself. However, Jessica picks it up. And when she picks it up, it activates. It blades form. And Vincenzo is astonished because, you know, that's not supposed to happen. It's connected to death himself. He's the only one that can turn that thing on. And yet here it is. Jessica picks it up and it activates. And so that reveals that my thought about Jessica's past is on point. You know, I was thinking that she had a connection to death, whether she was death in disguise or a child of death or just had some type of connection to death, which allowed her to be seen. And this seems to confirm my theory about that. So, you know, Vincenzo protects them as the end busts into the chamber again, looking to correct the imbalance by disposing of Jessica and as many of the afterlife that he can. And so Vincenzo loses his life protecting them, but they are able to get away. And that's how the issue ends until you get to the epilogue of the story. And the epilogue of the story takes place in Las Vegas, where someone is trying to press their luck at the slot machines. And it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Uh, And he, you know, walks away. But I am wondering, because just looking at the colors, 
I am wondering if this is the aforementioned uh, death who has gone missing uh, because the story ends at that point. So, again, I have been enjoying this story from the start. I I know a lot of friends, uh, particularly over at TBU, has been speaking highly of the work that Phillips has been doing on Harley Quinn. Of course, you know I'm not the biggest Harley Quinn fan. Um, and so I've never really been able to experience her writing style with regards to that character. But I am enjoying this story a lot. And if you aren't reading Grimm, I strongly suggest that you pick it up because, again, it's it's a hard book to find, but it is a fun book to read. And uh, I've been enjoying it. The art and the, the art by Flaviano with colors by Rico Renzi has just been absolutely stunning. I'm enjoying it. There's nothing about this book that I don't enjoy. So, again, it's my issue of the episode Grim number three from Stephanie Phillips, Flaviano, and Boom Studios. So that is going to do it for this episode's reviews. Now let's take a quick look at what's going to be releasing this week. This week being August the 2nd and 3rd. Uh, first up, over at DC, releasing on August the 2nd, we have the second issue, part two of the Fail Safe Arc in Batman 126, written by Jeff Sadowski with art by Jorge Jimenez. Uh, we also have the new uh, tie-in story to Batman the White Knight. White Knight presents Red Hood number one, written and drawn by Sean Murphy. Uh, we also are getting Aquaman Andromeda number two, written by... Rob V, uh, who is Detective Comics' new main writer, with art by Christian Ward. Over also uh, releasing Tuesday, the new champion of Shazam. We finally, uh, after some delay, get that story to be released, written by Josie Campbell, with art by Evan Doc Shaner. Over at Image, uh, we get. The Walking Dead Deluxe, issue number 44, written by Rob Kirkman, with art by Charlie Uh We also get issue number four of Twig from Scotty Young. And then we get uh, the penultimate issue of Merka and Dolfo's Sweet Paprika. Uh, so that series is coming to an end soon. So issue number 11 releases on Wednesday. And over at Marvel, uh, we get a new mini of Peach Momoko and her Demon Wars series. Demon Wars, the Iron Samurai, number one. Uh, and she serves as both the writer and the artist for this. Then uh, we get back to Avengers X-Men Eternal Judgment Day with uh, Immortal X-Men number five from... Karen Gillen with art by Michelle Bondini. Then over at Image, we get the Dead Lucky Number One, written by Melissa Flores with art by Fritch Calamango. Uh, this is a new addition, the newest addition to the massive universe, uh, along with uh, Radiant Black and uh, Rogue Sun. So we have a new addition to that universe releasing on Wednesday. And then we get issue number four of Metal Society that we covered here today, written by Zach Kaplan with art by Gilholm Bobby. And then just uh, finishing things out over at Vault Comics, we have Pox and Hair. Number two, written by John Sway, with art by Stacy Lee. And then finishing out what I'm going to be looking at, uh, looking for next week. Issue number 28 of Once in Future from K. 
Aaron Gillen and Dan Moore. And so from everything that's been teased these days, that issue 30 will be the final issue of this series. And considering that it was only supposed to be a six-part mini, uh, this has been an absolute great ride uh, from these guys with this story. So I hate to see it end, but as they say, all good things must come to an end. And so uh, we'll be seeing that in a few months as it gets to issue 30, which is slated to be its final issue. But issue number 28 releases on Wednesday, August the 3rd. So, that is going to do it for this episode of the Comic Ben Comic Book Podcast. Uh, next time, next time in addition to looking at some more books, uh, it's going to be previews time. We'll be looking at uh, what I am planning on picking up in the month of October. So, as always, I truly appreciate the support that you guys give to the show. I want to thank you all for listening in. You know, we continue to look at ways of doing more and I got some great things lined up. So until next time, you know, continue following us, continue supporting us and keep reading those comics.